Bibles to the book of Matthew. Today we will be in chapter 20. So Matthew chapter 20 in the first 16 verses. There are, are many things uh, that are happening in our culture today or that, that are accepted in our culture today that uh, not too long ago would have been considered scandalous. Now, I'm not talking about the big, <laughs> big cultural stuff that's happening because there's plenty of things that are, used to be scandalous that should stay scandalous, but I'm just talking about uh, everyday kind of things. Uh, and so here are a few that, that come to my mind. Women wearing pants. Right, it used to be really scandalous. Yeah, this this happens now. We don't even think about it, but it wasn't that long ago that it was considered scandalous. In fact, uh, at our old church, um, we, there was this lady, sweet lady. She's going to help us sing uh, songs during worship service, and and she came up to me that morning and and she said, "Pastor, is it okay if I wear pants?" It's okay. It's okay. You don't have to go home and change. It's okay. It's fine. Uh, but at one point, you know, it's not just wearing pants that was scandalous. If, if, if women were to show too much ankle, right, that's, that's considered scandalous, would have been scandalous. Uh, and there are others, uh, and, and the ones I'm about to list are uh, strikes. Uh, wearing blue jeans to church uh, would have been scandalous. In fact, still is scandalous in some churches today. Thank you, Boulevard, for overlooking my offense today. Uh, tattoos are much more commonplace today, and, and if you need more scandal, uh, one of your pastors and his wife have their fair share of tattoos. Talking about Doug uh, <laughs> and Laura. Don't ask him to show you where it is. Uh, and, and older generations will have a better grasp at, at remembering some of these things being scandalous. Uh, I think oh, we, we might have some people here who remember uh, what it was like. Oh yeah, that, that used to be scandalous. But, but my point is that it's a good thing to reflect on how, how some things used to be scandalous because it, it can make us really thankful for what we enjoy now. It's like, wow, we, we've really come a long way. And when we read the Gospels, I think we kind of come to it with the same sense of familiarity uh, to where we don't understand the, the, the right sense of scandal that happens often in, in the Gospels. Uh, we, we, we've read them so much or heard the story so much, we've just kind of grown accustomed to them. But it's a very good thing to pause and reflect on how uh, confounding and controversial and scandalous, Jesus' teachings would have sounded to conventional ears. And that's, that's kind of the point. That's Jesus' point. The, the kingdom of earth is, is bizarre to earthly-minded creatures. It doesn't fit into earthly categories, and, it, and, and, and so it, it, it has a tendency to sound scandalous. To those with faith, it's the fragrance of life, but uh, to the unbelieving hearts, it's the odor of death. And I believe that this is a fitting message for us as a New Year's message because let us enter 2023 shocked at grace. That's what I want. I want us to enter this year shocked at grace. Let it shock us that we may love it. And continually reorient hearts and minds and thoughts, loves and lives around this mighty grace that is ours. So I want to invite you uh, to look at God's word as we read Matthew 
uh, chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So... The last will be first, and the first last. So I'm going to do some uh, alliteration this morning with, with three points that Jesus is making. And, and first, Jesus uses this parable to show us the outrage of grace. Right? It's actually an interesting point and one that I have to defend because the central themes of this passage are actually the, the opposite of grace. What, what are the words that, that come up over and over? Laboring. Working, wages, payments, what's deserved. They're the opposite of grace because these things are earned, where, where grace is unmerited, right? You, you don't labor for or earn grace. If you could earn grace, then it's not grace anymore. So this, this passage centers around wages and earning, what, what we deserve in return for our work. So with that in mind, I want us to kind of zoom out a little bit and look at some context. So if you have your Bibles with you, flip back a page or two. All right, chapter 18. And I want you to look at chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Underneath that question, the disciples are wondering, How great are we? Right? That's what they really want to know. They, they want brownie points from Jesus. So from that point on, right, from chapter 18, verse 1, all the way to the end of this chapter, chapter 20, that's the central question that, that Jesus is answering, that, that Matthew has grouped together for us. Who is the greatest? And to the disciples' surprise, it's not at all who they were expecting. In fact, it's so surprising, the answer to that question is so surprising, that in the passage that immediately precedes this one, where we're at today, the disciples learn that it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, this this rich young ruler, there in chapter 19, if you want, just look right there, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What we learn in 
what the disciples learn is that the rich young man is an example of someone who is considered the greatest on earth, but is in fact the least in the kingdom of heaven because he treasures his possessions more than he treasures Christ. So, listen, follow me. It is not a coincidence that after an incident with a rich man who believed he could earn eternal life, we have a parable about what? Money, earnings, and wages. Exactly the problem that plagues the rich young man. And of all the areas of life, work is the main one where we rightly expect payment for our labor. I'm not one, I'm not a Christian who's, who's happy lawsuit go lucky, but if you work and you don't get paid for it, then yeah, you should file a lawsuit. That's not legal advice, that's just, okay, you can do it, all right? If I do this, I should get this. It's, it's contractual, it's, it's transactional. It's like if I decided to do the laundry for Mallory, right? If I do it and expect praise or expect something in return, I'm not doing it for her. I'm doing it for me. My, my activity in, in laundry and doing laundry has become a transaction rather than an activity in love. But if it's my job to do laundry, then yes, I should get something in return. And it is not my job to do laundry. So for all this Turk about, talk about earnings and transaction and what we deserve and labor and wages, where is grace found in this passage? Grace is found in the way the master goes about hiring. It makes sense for him to early hire early in the morning. Okay, earn your day's wages. Okay, and he, you could see how he could still go out and, and hire later in the morning at the third hour. Okay, um, the sun's been up for a few hours, but they can still get a good uh, day's work in. But then he goes out in the afternoon at, at the sixth hour, and you're like, okay, wow. But he doesn't stop there. He, he, he goes out again at, at the ninth hour, later in the afternoon. It's getting pretty late in the day. Remember, they don't have lights back then. They just have candles. So, so when sun... Go, the sun goes down, work is over. Work day is done. But he, he doesn't stop at 3 p.m., 4 p.m. He goes out at the 11th hour and hires more workers. Folks, the sun is setting. They have no work left to do. The master of the vineyard shows extraordinary grace by hiring people who don't at all deserve to be hired. Did you, did, you, did you notice this question? Why are you standing here idle all day? They're not doing anything. And they don't have time to contribute anything to his vineyard. But the, the master not only hires those who don't deserve it, he, he hires indiscriminately, irrespective of the person, irrespective of the quality of work that they could possibly produce. And church, that's how grace operates. And while grace isn't transactional, grace loves to make promises that it keeps. It makes a promise that it keeps to the end. 
To each of these workers, the master gives a whole day's wages. And, and grace follows through regardless of the work that's done. This whole scenario is as if uh, the manager of, of Walmart, this Walmart over here, decides, okay, my, my shop is closing at 10, but at 9 p.m. I'm going to go hire a, a door greeter. And then by the end of this door greeter's one-hour shift, he pays him an entire paycheck. The, the manager doesn't need this worker. This, this master of this vineyard is being irresponsible. He's hiring all these people he doesn't need. And this worker doesn't deserve his pay. But that's, that's the outrage of grace. It, it comes to you full, free, and indiscriminately. You, you don't deserve it. You don't work enough to earn it. And you don't just get a day's worth in, in Christ's economy. You get a, a lifetime of grace. And more. That's why grace is outrageous. It's unfair. And that, that actually is, is good, a good segue for our next point because if there's anything humans are good at, it's at being offended, complaining, self-pity. And nothing, nothing brings this out in me, and it does come out like technology. Right, it's technology so great. I love it. I'm, you know, it's great. But when it doesn't work, the world is ending. Right, like I, I hate technology. Why do we even have this? Like, and so Jesus exposes this tendency. Right, he exposes the offense of our hearts. After the hiring and the working comes the payment. And so, verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "Call the laborers and pay them their wages." beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those first hired first came, they thought they, would they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last only worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Now, traditionally, and you may have heard the, this passage interpreted something like this. The, the workers hired late are those who are saved later in life, while those who are hired earlier are saved earlier in life. And the application is that lifetime believers shouldn't grumble against those who are saved later because we will receive the same reward in the end, eternal life. And now that's true. You, you shouldn't do that. Okay, don't. Don't be mad that people are saved. And that's, that's kind of my point. Like, In my experience, we just don't do that. We're not mad at the thief on the cross, right? We're, yeah, praise God for the thief on the cross. Praise God. So, so I don't think that's Jesus' main point. He's exposing with his parable something deeper at work in our hearts. And the, the problem that Jesus is exposing in this parable about earnings and wages is that these workers have a horribly transactional attitude. That's the problem that he's exposing. Did you notice what they said? They thought they would receive more. You have made them equal to us. 
They didn't like being considered the same caliber as those lazy one-hour workers. Despite the fact that, yeah, they agreed to work for a denarius and be grateful that they have work in the first place, they use their work as a means to justify that they deserve more. You see how Jesus is answering the question, who is the greatest? They deserve better. It never occurs to them that it could have been them hired at the 11th hour. Or not at all. And this is a problem of the human heart, regardless if you're saved for Presbyterians when you're a baby. (laughs) It's a joke. Or when you're saved later in life, okay? That's a problem of the human heart, regardless of when you're saved. Every single one of us in our darker moments have uttered the words or thought, I don't deserve this. After everything I've done, how can God do this? God, I've been faithful to you. Why aren't you coming through for me? We expect, because we've been obedient, that we deserve something from God more than what we've been given. But that attitude is exposing a sickened heart. It shows our obedience wasn't done from love. It was done transactionally. And you know you have this problem when your heart is regularly offended by how you are treated, both by other people and and God, by God. I saw someone on Twitter once say, um, one of the few good things I've seen on Twitter, when someone says, after all I've done for you, they are revealing that what they did for you was not for you at all, but for them and their own need to control you. Their generosity was just a contract with hidden terms of compliance. Breach the contract and you become the problem. Friends, take that and that's how our hearts are with God. When God doesn't come through for us in the way we expect him to, and this is our attitude, it, we reveal it wasn't done for God at all, but for ourselves. And, and the reason that this is a huge problem is because at its root, this is self-idolatry. God becomes a means to enrich us. God becomes a means to make much of us. God becomes a means to make us God. We put God under obligation to us. <laughs> The fact of the matter is that, is that these workers were judging the master based on how they felt they were treated. They were judging him from their own selfishness and they were projecting on him the selfishness that existed in their own hearts. They thought that he was being stingy when in reality the owner is being lavishly generous. Many of us have thought this way at some point about our parents. You don't ever let me do anything. You just want to make my life miserable when usually our parents are trying to do many things for our good. The master even asked them pointedly in verse 15, do you begrudge my generosity? They assessed him as, and judged him as stingy. Friends, when God appears stingy to us, 
The problem is not with God, but that we think too highly of ourselves in our work and what we bring to the table. He is being generous. We just think we're more important than that, and that's the offense of our hearts. So to answer the question, who is the greatest, and to find the remedy of our sick hearts, Jesus directs us to the otherworldly kingdom. The master makes a very incisive point in verse 13. He replied to one of them, friend, I I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And, And Jesus makes the climactic point in verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. You see, this last point Uh, among many things, is probably, uh, to me, the biggest reason why this isn't about being saved earlier or later in life, because you can become first or become last no matter uh, at what point you're saved. Now, when Jesus says the last will be first and the first last, he's talking about who gains entrance into the kingdom, who is in and who is out. That's his, precisely his point with the rich young ruler. The, the rich young ruler, though he is first now, will be last in respect to the kingdom, which is to say he's not in the kingdom at all. So Jesus is using the foil of these workers to show who is first and who is last. So we want to ask the question, who, who is last? It's precisely who we've been talking about. The, the last are those who see their relationship with God as transactional. As deserving of something more or better. Those who see God primarily as stingy or withholding. Those are the last in the kingdom of God. But the first in the kingdom? The first are the humble. Those who know they don't have a chance to be hired until God comes in mercy and rescues them. They're the last because they know they're the least. And this comes out not only in their relationship with God, but with other people too. The the transactional use people as a means to get something else. right? And, and, And this comes out for all of us. And red flags that you're operating this way is that you're you're short with people. You're hard on them, or you see them as a nuisance. The humble, on the other hand, serve other people for their good, for for building them up. More deeply, though, the first are the grace-starved. When the eleventh hour struck, the workers were getting ready to go home. They didn't know if they would have food on the table by the end of the night. But when we are starved for grace, that denarius is so precious. When you're starved for grace, the denarius of grace is wonderful. The grace starved long just for a denarius to get them through the day. And the first are God-centered. They might struggle at times with trusting God. 
But by faith they know and accept and rest in a lavishly generous God even when he doesn't appear that way from our limited perspective. That's the I believe help my unbelief prayer. They don't bake bank on their own obedience to get them through. They don't bank on their own faithfulness to get them through, but on God's generosity. I mean, I remember struggling with this in a particular intense season of doubt and ask, and saying in my head, maybe out loud, God, I've been faithful to you. Why aren't you coming through for me? When it occurred to me that I wasn't the one staying faithful at all, God was the one staying faithful to me. And he was the one that was keeping me faithful. I could claim nothing. The scandal of grace is that Jesus did not come for the righteous. Isn't that astounding? Think about how that would sound to a first century Jew trying with all their might to keep the law. Jesus saying, I did not come for you. He came for the sinner, the lawbreaker. He did not come for those with something to offer. He came for those who could only offer offense and guilt for sin. I love this quote by Jonathan Edwards. You contribute nothing to use your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Talk about a transaction. Are you a sinner? Jesus will have you. Do you feel beyond redemption? Jesus will take you. Are you weighed with guilt? Jesus beckons you because we're the 11th hour workers with no hope of being rescued, hired, or shown mercy. But Jesus comes to you anyway. Friend, come. Come and work in my vineyard. It's precisely the lack. It's precisely the guilt. It's precisely the sin that qualifies you to receive the full, free, and forever grace of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about a denarius just to put food on the table. We're talking about eternal grace. And you're qualified if you're a sinner. Your disqualification becomes your qualification to enter into the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ. That's outrageous. That's scandal. All because he earned that grace for you on the cross. It's yours if you will look to the master of the vineyard by faith. It's yours, friend. And this denarius of grace, this grace that Christ gives us, not only forgives us, but it empowers us. It empowers a life of holiness and obedience. And it's ours, ours by faith. And the living Christ who beckons you, come work in my vineyard. Let's respond to this Savior this morning.